1: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm a co-host on the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with Erin M. Kimker, Associate Professor of History at Mississippi University for Women. Her book, Big Sister, Feminism, Conservatism, and Conspiracy in the Heartland, published by the University of Illinois Press, is our topic today. The author examines how 1970s right-wing women activists in the state of Indiana combined earlier political conspiracy theories, Cold War anti-communism, and anti-ERA sentiments to cast feminism as a threat to American democracy, free enterprise, and the family. Conservative women groups in the Midwest, such as Minute Women and Pro-America, rallied against the Equal Rights Amendment at a critical moment for feminism in the state. The strategies of the ERA Coordinating Committee, a coalition of 12 liberal organizations, was of low-key bipartisan lobbying of legislators that marginalized radical feminists. The soft sale approach of Hoosier feminists threatened to kill ERA as it faced militant right-wing opposition. Gimker examines the motivations and organizational strategies of right-wing women and the problems feminists encountered in promoting ERA as a matter of simple justice and failing to directly counter the conservative critiques. Big Sister is a study of both conservative strategies that led to the rightward move of the Republican Party in the 1980s and the failings of feminists in delaying the ultimate passage of the ERA in Indiana, offering lessons for activists today. Here is my conversation with Aaron M. Kempker. Let me introduce you to the author, Erin Kempker. Erin, how are you? I am very well. How are you? Welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Before we get into the book, I want you to tell us why this book, you know, tell us about your background and why you came Mm -hmm. to write this book.
2: Um, This was not the book I ever intended to write. I'm sure a lot of authors tell you that. Uh, I stopped, this book had many stops and starts, um, but Initially, I wanted to write a book about feminism in the Midwest and uh, specifically Indiana, because that's where I found myself. Uh, I am a Midwesterner. I'm from Missouri, um, and so that question of what did feminism on the in the Midwest and, and not on the, on one of the coasts, you know, what what exactly did that look like, and how were these communities affected by feminism? I, I believed that they were. I had a sense that they were, but there wasn't a whole lot out there on it, and so I was very curious about that question. So initially, it was going to be a book about feminism. And when I got into the archives, um, what just kept coming up was the response to feminism. Um, There were glimpses of it in the archives, Um, now had papers at the Indiana Historical Society and other... um, Women's groups, uh, feminist groups, supportive of the ERA, but there weren't that many um, collections specifically on anti-ERA women, and but they showed up in these collections of uh, women who supported the ERA, and so I kept getting glimpses of the anti-feminist argument, the anti-ERA argument, and it became very difficult in my mind to separate the history of feminism from the history of anti-feminism. Um, and so I wrote the dissertation with a little bit of both sprinkled in and really struggled with what, what the book might be. So then I thought, well, I'll I'll just tell the story of the anti-feminists um, because their story was compelling too. So the diss was about the feminists and I'll now do a book about the other side. Um, and I and I did for years thinking that that was going to be the book. Um, but then, you know, in the last couple of years, it just became clearer to me that that I needed to be able to talk about both and how they were responding to one another in real time. And so even though it was very hard conceptually to figure out how to do that, since we're talking about such different worldviews and such different politics, um, you know, I I had some books on hand like um, Susan Goodyear's No Votes for Women and others that looked at anti-feminists and feminists, you know, in a single book. Um, And so that that became then my goal was to to write a book that looked at both sides and tried to understand both sides and then tried to explain ultimately the one to the other now you uh, you
1: situate your whole, st- whole history in particularly not only the Midwest but the state of Indiana. Yes. And we have to start with, and you start with the culture of the Midwest. yeah, what is? it mean to be a Midwesterner? What does it mean to be a Hoosier? Yeah. <laughs> you know that and what is the the sort of the the the, the social cultural context yes. in which these battles are gonna take take up be taken up.
2: Yeah, that became very important because it was clear that both sides were gauging the political and climate that they found themselves in. So then it became very important to understand what their perceptions of that political climate might be. How did they understand um, how their politics might play out in such a climate, because they were crafting an argument for a specific place and time, and that that was very clear in the ERA and the struggle to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. So it became important to me to understand then um, the political climate of the state and uh, really over through throughout the throughout the twentieth uh, century. I mean. Um, And that turns out is a pretty difficult thing because uh, right now I'm in, uh, I'm at Mississippi University for Women. And, you know, the history of the South and the South as a region has a very strong identity. It has a very strong sense of itself culturally, historically. Um, But that is not true of the Midwest. And... So, you get Midwestern scholars who are still trying to figure out. I think, you know, one one historian called it, you know, it's a mushy place. Nobody even agrees really where it is on a map, much less, you know, sort of like cultural values that are shared by Midwesterners. Um, But what I argue in the book and what I do think is relevant for the women that I studied is that there does seem to be an agreement um, among Midwesterners and among people in the 20th century that um, you need to be nice, you need to be polite. You, Radical politics are are to be avoided, that there is um, a certain sense of community and an obligation that binds people together, and disrupting that is, is a huge social problem. And so there is an aversion to radical politics or conflict. And Richard Pierce talked about this in his book, too, um, Polite Protest, which is what he called it, uh, looking at the civil rights movement in Indianapolis, Um And, and other scholars have tried to find different ways of talking about it. James Matt, um, uh, is that right? James Madison, I think, uh, his book on Indiana, you know, he's talking about the, that Indiana believes in evolutionary, not revolutionary change. And so it seems that people are hinting at the same ideas. And I I thought that was important to note in, in setting up the context of Indiana. Yeah.
1: I think it's really interesting. And, and, because in that environment of niceness okay mm-hmm. you're this you've got this galvanizing moment against the era by right-wing women who don't seem it doesn't seem to me like they're, they're particularly concerned about being nice Yes. It, we talk about radical politics you're talking about maybe radical politics on the left yes but it seems like there's a lot of room for radical politics on the, the right. right.
2: That is exactly right. And I do think that still fits in that trend because the conservative women would say they are the upholders of tradition and gender and the notion of gender difference. So in that way, they are kind of prioritizing and celebrating um, the status quo. And so in that sense, they, they're they not like encumbered with the same element of niceness. It's the feminists who want change. It's the feminists who are challenging our way of life. Um, if your way of life is built on these heteronormative, you know, gender assumptions about men and women. And so for them, they almost have a freer hand. They aren't constrained in the same way. They have to defend what they see as radical attacks on this uh, way of life and on um, this notion that that women and men are very different, that that difference is ordained by God, um, and that difference should be maintained in the the social structure of the United States. And so, yeah, they don't seem and they are not bound by the same rules of politeness, whereas I think the feminists understood that they were introducing change. Now, they would say it was it was it was, you know, moderate reform change. They 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 were very careful to try to paint themselves as um, non radicals. Right. This was a matter of this was their quote, simple justice. Um, And so they do seem to be much more conscious of being labeled radical. Um, and to almost universally agree that that would be bad.
1: Well, it's interesting because it sounds, you know, the right wing wing and sound like, uh, uh, Palin and her mama bear, you know, idea. Yes. You know, women, the, the mama bear defending, you know, the cubs and, you know, protecting them and willing to do anything to do it. So it's, it's kind of, it's it's really interesting, but it's still it's really pretty radical, and da, 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 yes. I think overstep yes. the bounds of of niceness. Now, the yes. other thing I want to ask you about is you um, you build your argument, and you spent quite a bit of time throughout the book in different places talking about the history of conspiracy theories. Yeah, and. <sighs> what they were. There's a long history of conspiracy theories. And it even goes back. You talk about going back even to the the new Republic. And uh, why have these, what are these theories? Yeah. Why have they been appealing? And how did feminism get connected to (laughs) conspiracy theories?
2: See, this was the most interesting thing. And it took me the longest really to suss out and understand because initially when I saw these ideas, I, I have to be honest, I, I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't even know how to explain them because they seem to my mind so far fetched. You know, like you're, you're reading about, you know, something like the Equal Rights Amendment, but then in opposing the Equal Rights Amendment, you're reading about people who are calling feminist traitors and, um, you know, talking about planners and this conspiracy of world government. And it, it just, it made no sense to me at all. And it made no sense to the feminist women of the 1970s. They could not, they could not understand what was going on. They could not understand the vehemence of the, of the attack that their opponents were putting up. Um, and that took a lot longer. It took, and, and like you said, it takes a lot more explanation because it's not really well understood. So, I think now, after the 2016 election, maybe we're all more aware of just how common conspiracy belief is in the United States. But as I was writing this book, you know, that had not yet really burst onto the national consciousness, like, you know, that so many Americans really, you know, used conspiracy belief to explain the world around them. But... In researching this book, what was clear is that conspiracy belief was really quite important to understanding conservative women's response to feminism, specifically um, what I call in the book and and what others have called um, the new world conspiracy um, or what I call in the book uh, one worldism, at least since World War II, but it. It has roots really in the Illuminati and other kinds of conspiracies of the earlier 20th century and, e- and even going back, like you said, to the founding of the country. There is this fear of centralized power um, in the United States, and it has European roots. And whether that centralized power is being created by the Illuminati or Jews, uh, because a lot of this smacks with anti-Semitism and is is you know, hues closely to those anti-Semitic arguments that were uh, so popular leading up to World War II, um, that there is this cabal um, of elites in the world who are paving the way for um, one-worldism or world government, and whether that's through the United Nations or through some other form, um, and that this world government will supersede the United States, and it will mean the elimination of national sovereignty um, and we will all become global citizens um, or even worse, like clogs in a, a, a cogs in a global government um, and, not, and not even um, citizens because it wouldn't be representative in any form. And so that fear, once you start really trying to dig in and understand it, is, is common in the United States and then it is increasing over the course of the 20th century. as the federal government grows, It seems so does this fear that the federal government could and would cede control to a world government. And Catherine Olmsted is talking about that when she says, like, it used to be people feared attacks on the federal government. But by the late 20th century, it's people fearing that the federal government is the perpetrator of this sort of like centralized power conspiracy yeah, it's sort yeah. of like
1: uh, i'm thinking about when conspiracy theories recently you know we have 9/11 conspiracy yes. theories and oh, we yes. also have the deep state which was more yes. recent absolutely that, that there is this covert uh, um uh, government underneath the legitimate government that's yes. elected there's another government that's operating that's actually in charge of everything yes, yes. okay so in this um idea of the conspiracies and also tied to that of course is the anti-communism and and it seems like what was what the connection is that communism and this one world government is going to lead to the erasure of gender differences motherhood family the children will be raised you know in these communal daycares they'll be taken away from you yes and you you know, the home will no longer be sacred because everything's going to be taken over by a social, you know, communal model of everything.
2: Planning, like social planners will right. have time responsible. That's exactly right. Like the, the fears of one world government are just sort of like layered on to almost the communist threats. And so you just kind of see those fears blended. But what that means is that those communist fears now have a life A new life, right? Like communism, just just because the threat of communism is like lessens over the course of the 20th century and and people fear that less, um, those older threats that it was always laid on top of, like that idea of a a world government um, in which, you know, the personal and local and even like national sovereignty would be lost and this idea of unisex treatment that feminists were pushing, that's that's the conservative uh, um, women's understanding of it, or that's their language for it, unisex treatment, that men and women's roles will not be different. Um, to them, that smacked of the same kind of Homogenization that would be happening in a world government. Also, they're they're like focus on um, interracial politics. That somehow um, the there would be an interracial, n- not gender binary future, um, without national sovereignty, without borders, without um, a grounding in the Christian, uh, Judeo Christian tradition. All of these things to de- to them sort of blended together. These threats um, and so feminism replaced almost communism as the leaders of this, the the one world government movement.
1: Well, it's really interesting that they have such, such faith in the ability of the, of, of one world people to get together enough to get this done. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, it's like, especially if they're doing it in secret because, you know, you can't keep a secret anywhere in the United States today. You know, if if there is like a deep, a deep state, we would know about it. Like, because people would be spilling the beans all over the place.
2: <laughs> and I mean, you know, that's one of the things that I think you see in right-wing women's conversations, you know, I, and I never could really understand or get at how many conservative women, how many people within like the anti-ERA um, umbrella or tent Really push these ideas. Certainly, some women, I think, like Joan Gubbins, are willing to use these ideas because they speak to a common fear. It was unclear to me always how much she believed in them herself, Ah. Um, but -hmm. politically, they're quite useful um, because it it connects, you know, it connects what's happening today with a longer history. It creates a a clear sense of good and bad, right and wrong, Um, and it's a worldview that is not that new. I think that's one of the most remarkable things is just how long lasting some of these ideas are. Do You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like anything that happens, it's not really that new. You've, you've got a framework for understanding this.
1: Right. You can just, yes, you can just put it all in the same bucket.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's all stemming from the same impulse. And for a lot of these conservative women who are also evangelical, that impulse was Satan. Like literally, this is the Antichrist at work. And I think that's also, I mean, a huge part of why they respond with such vitriol to feminism.
1: Okay. So let me ask you a question about these women themselves. What is their social economic position?
2: Mm-hmm. Are, um, are these
1: uh, relative really affluent or are they more middle class or upper middle class? Uh, I, are they working women,
2: working class women? Right, it's. I wish I had better demographic information. There was, you know, there are some there are some good national demographic studies on anti-era women, um, but I I think you know largely middle class, um, uh, not all, but many many were um, stay-at-home wives, um, but certainly not all. Um, they were not all mothers. They were not all married. Evelyn Pishke is a really good example of that. She was a single woman. Uh, she supported herself as a lawyer. Uh, a lot of these women are college-educated. Um, most of the women that I found information on and, and certainly the women I interviewed were college-educated women. Um, so, I think most historians would tell you they're not socially isolated, right? So, they're not, it's not that they lack understanding or education about the world. In many ways, they're quite politically um, savvy. They, they have good information about the political process and about how it works um, and I think that a lot of their literature reveals that too, that that they understand how to um connect to their legislators. They they understand the process that is necessary. They just have a very different worldview now,
1: than than the what left. What about black women? I think you had one woman in, in your book who was an African American.
2: There are at least two women that are anti ERA delegates to the national. Um, International Women's Year celebration in Houston that were African-American, African-American conservative women opposing the ERA. So there were at least two from Indiana there. Um, I don't have any um, information uh, written in their hand and um, could not get any uh, contact information. Uh, because uh, you know a lot of time has passed and, and 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 people didn't have it anymore so i wasn't able to orally interview um those women i'm very curious to know more about them yeah i, I think th- it's really
1: interesting and i'm mm-hmm. just kind of wondering uh, it ha- if it has a, if there's a racial component in there
2: mm-hmm.
1: in terms of you know uh the Afri- the besieged african american family and how mm-hmm. they particularly have a vested interest of course in supporting family structures right. that the you know it's it's yes. there's a real uh you know political social and historical sec- I think that would make a very interesting book all by yeah. itself
2: Oh I it's- do too oh, oh yes and there is you know there's reference in the um I make reference to one historian's look at one of the most important speakers or oh, she was a black woman um who went on to become a speaker in the John Birch Society and in the John Birch Society network and so she's got a little bit more of a written record there um, but yeah this, this fascinating look at how in some cases black women supported the conservative arguments of, of the time and that they, they also felt very uh, deeply invested in this notion of gender difference in the biblical sanction of gender difference and in its preservation um, and the family yeah, very much the family and, and, and believe that the family structure is really built on that preservation of, of gender difference.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um
1: so, so let me ask you about these uh these right wing the, the, the organization the chapter that you had on, on their organization, how they organized, yeah, you know, the, the their activism, the things they did, the phone banks and yeah and, and bookstores and yeah. I just thought amazing amount of energy, uh, yeah. strategy, yeah, thought. That's um, what I mean.
2: Really politically savvy and quite motivated. Like, you know, that's, that's a remarkable commitment that these women made. Yes.
1: So can you talk a little bit about those, the tools and, uh, you know, how, how, yeah, the tools that they used and how they de- got themselves organized because it didn't seem... There were quite a few organizations involved like the the Minute Women or mm-hmm. and Pro-America. and mm-hmm. But it seemed the, the most effective things were at the very grassroots housewife level.
2: It was, yes. Um, you know, and so Minute Women had pioneered this idea that you could dispense with meetings if you could have effective telephone networks. And so... Um, You know, they organized for action, a lot of protest action, um, but they never publicly admitted to an organized response. You saw that kind of in that chapter that they never admit that there is a planning and organization to their strategy because they believed it would be more effective if it was seen as like independent women rising up calling their legislator or, you know, um, organic, organic, that yeah, it was somehow more effective as a, as a, a, a political protest. If they, if their group never acknowledged that it had, it had actually acted. And so they used the telephone for this because it was a very effective means women could access it from their homes. Um, they could stay in contact with one another in that way, but they could also use it as a protest. So when something like the Indiana civil liberties union was trying to get going, um, minute women called around and tried to make sure that no public space in the city would be open to them. And, you know, they could do that from their own home and it, and it it's almost go- It's sort of like guerrilla warfare. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, you know, it, it it's really remarkable. Um, the, like you said, like the dedication that it took, but also just, you know, the, the vehemence of the response, right? Like to deny them meeting space And, you know, they went on to acknowledge, yes, they, they absolutely thought that the Indiana Civil Rights Union protected, was, was a communist organization and protected communists. Um, So they would use the telephone like that. They would use the telephone also. And you saw that Let Freedom Ring, where they would robocall. They robocalled people with specific messages um, and then directed them to their bookstore if they liked the message. And they also
1: didn't, they did a lot of research too, like deep. Research,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, into the opposition. Uh huh. The, who they the, who they were encountering? What who they were? How they were connected? Who they knew? What they supported? You know. They yes. had a, They did a lot of research. I think that was really interesting. It wasn't just action; it was really informed action. It was informed by a lot of, backed up by a lot of research.
2: Yes, I mean they read the Congressional Record. They read what their, you know, legislators are saying in the State House, but also in in uh, in Congress. Um, they comb through the National Education Association. Um, newsletters, just because the, they believe the National Association of uh, uh, National Educators Association is in league with One World, is implan- you know, promoting that sort of like national health um, initiatives promote this sort of global mindedness. So they they're constantly on alert uh, and researching these these groups and their their publications to track what they see as this conspiracy.
1: Well, it's what's really interesting about these women too was the fact that they became really unacknowledged leaders within the right. Yeah, they they were not given within their own uh, movement the the credit or the acknowledgement or the uh, you know the yeah. platforms because when we think about the right today, we of that period, we think we see about a parade of men. Yeah. Except for Phyllis Shafley. That's right. You know, uh, these women were not given the credit they were due. And one example that you give is the example of the Germ-Birch Society and how it started. Yeah. And how women were important, but they were never really recognized as critical.
2: No. And I mean... Marguerite Dice, who is uh, the regional leader of the Minute Women, um, and she runs the Indianapolis branch of the Minute Women. You know, she's the woman who opens her home and encourages Robert Welch um, to use her, literally use her home to begin the John Birch Society. Um, and he never acknowledges her, her politics, um, which he had to be aware of, uh, who she was and the extensive uh, work she had done in uh, anti-communist work she had done in the state of Indiana uh, and nationally, the men and women. But you never see reference to that in the John Birch Society, um, in the blue book, the founding uh, really document of the John Birch Society. Um, And even then after really it's only like Indianapolis, Indianapolis Magazine. It's only really sort of like Indianapolis folks who are really aware that it was, you know, that the John Birch Society was born in Indianapolis for a reason, and that reason was Margaret Dice. Um, so yeah, I think their argument in many ways acted to obscure their politics.
1: So isn't it, is it some more like they wanted, um, the reason they were willing to allow, you know, they didn't protest that was because mm-hmm. the whole idea that men should be the ones in the public sphere, the, yeah. the men, men should lead the public arena, and they saw themselves as we're just kind of backup forces. That's right, and we're home based. Yes, we're not. We're not based in the public. We're based in the home.
2: Yes, I think their separate spheres argument very much supported that erasure from from the leadership and from the image of the leadership. Um, and then, you know, I, I I I think there was ambivalence about that. Although you don't really hear much of that um, in in their public statements. But I do think that many of the women, at least that, that uh, I interviewed or some of the women I interviewed did want leadership positions. They did want to take credit for what they had done. You know what I mean? Like that, that was an ambivalence for them. And it's, you know, it's an ambivalence for Phyllis Schlafly, right? Like her argument is that she is, she is, she is going into the public sphere to battle women so that other women can stay at home. But obviously it's taking her out of sphere, right? You know, And she thinks that's a worthwhile thing to do for her. She's willing to make that sacrifice. But I think one woman that I interviewed told me like where we really went wrong was in our response to working women. And I think that for many conservative women, you know, that ambivalence about always, always being in a supportive role and never taking the lead, that was a hard one. And they kind of see now maybe that the tide has turned against that Um, and that that because I don't think a whole lot has changed about their politics, but encouraging other women to become leaders, I think that is something that even the conservative women would get on board with.
1: Right, because it seems like uh, the, uh, there were other trends, uh, when this right-wing ideology is is really ha- rising, that there were other trends that were happening that were kind of facilitating, first was the loss of confidence in the federal government.
2: Yes, and, yes. And
1: second was that there were more women going into the workplace. Yes. M- mothers. Yes.
2: Yes, in the workplace, yes,
1: more child care, yes. and that that kind of those those two trends would kind of nosedive with uh, the rise of the right here yes okay and- let me okay, so let me ask you about let's talk about the the Hoosier feminism yes uh, the 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 interesting part to me was it, the bipartisan nature of this nice yes. feminism
2: <laughs> yes yes.
1: Let's
2: talk about, talk about that. Talk about that? Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when I talk to my students today, they don't understand that feminism was a bipartisan issue because it's become such a polarized, uh, a politically polarized issue. But, no, in the 1970s, you know, um, absolutely, there were Republican feminists. And I point out that, you know, Richard Lugar uh, was heading up the Men for the ERA. Uh, the Republican governor, uh, excuse me, the Republican mayor of Indianapolis at the time, who would go on to become the Republican senator from Indiana. Um, so there, there was Republican support for the ERA, and so part of the story of what is happening as these battles are going on is how these conservative women pull the Republican Party right. And it is through issues like the ERA in I W Y International Women's Year, and just these larger issues of feminism, um, that they are pulling the Republican Party further right uh, along. And so when we, when we pick up this story, like in 1972, when Congress, you know, passes the ERA, Republican women in Indiana absolutely support the ERA, and they create the coalitions with Democratic women to get the ERA passed at the state level um but like you said they they make these calculations and so one of the calculations is that you know it could be a hard sell for a, in a red state a a conservative with a conservative political climate so let's make feminism nice let's let's keep it to a matter of quote simple justice and as one woman says let's create a mom and apple pie image of feminism and basically you know try to undercut the conservative women's arguments that they represent motherhood by saying no, we're wives and mothers too.
1: So, right. so yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's really in interesting because I, that that um, flavor of feminism is still very much alive today. Mm-hmm. Many many women who are uh, cons- politically conservative, who are in the professions, who have yes. big power careers, yes, okay, will will tell you that they are not feminist, right? But they're living off the legacy of what feminism has accomplished for women.
2: Okay? Yes, and, and they might split the difference and say something like, they believe in women's equality. Right. right? Like, they believe in women's equality, they just don't believe in feminism. And part of that is, you know, I, I, and then I always ask a follow-up, well, what does feminism mean to you? You know, like, I don't, I'm not sure right. that... Um, but, but yes, a lot of these women, and they, at this point in time, feminism isn't um, loaded with, all of, with any negativity. So a lot of these Republican women are even self-identifying as feminists. They're not even saying, like, no, we're not trying to be part. They're part of the feminist movement. Uh, they join now. They are in the feminist, you know, they are in feminist circles as Republican women. But it becomes increasingly difficult for Republican women over the course of the decade to maintain party loyalty and maintain loyalty to feminist organizations and feminist causes because their party is increasingly, like I said, pulling right because of the anti-feminist response to um, the ERA and feminist issues. So, so for example, like, you know, you had a lot of Republican support in Indiana, but as conservatives ramp up their argument, they're losing state legislators to the anti-ERA side and that leaves the coalition with this decision to make. Do we, do we cut the Republicans out and just say, forget it. We're just going to try to get Democrats elected, basically, as a way to get the ERA in the state? Um, which of course, would leave the Republican women in a bad spot, right? Because it's clear that um, the ERA supporters are turning against the, the Republican Party and their place then in, in, in a pro-ERA organization would be pretty questionable. And that's when
1: you come up with you, that's when you hear uh statements rumbling through the decades. I didn't leave feminism, feminism left, left me. me. Yeah. You yeah. know, that that so let me ask you about the uh this pro ERA coalition, feminist coalition. Uh-huh. Um, uh, at twelve twelve liberal organizations that brought it together, but there yeah. was a lot of division and there was a strategic decision yeah. to sort of sideline a uh, radical women the more radical uh, feminist yes. because they just did not look good in in the nice midwest
2: that talk about that that was you know and that seemed to be the political calculation that some within Hera the Hoosiers for the Equal Rights Amendment, which is that umbrella group that mm-hmm. sort of brought together all the uh, feminist and pro ERA uh, voices in the state. That seems to be the political calculation that they made that, and that was another fascinating thing to me is to learn that, you know, there were what we might call liberationists. There were, um, or what some historians have called radical feminists in the state uh, before the ERA, there were feminist collectives in the state and, um, Indianapolis had a women's liberation group. Bloomington had a women's liberation group. Um, they were talking about issues of sexuality, about um, race. They were um, holding LGBTQ proms in Bloomington um, in 1970 uh, as part of the feminist movement. Um, you know, it was it. It seemed to be a very diverse movement. In in the late 60s and early 70s. But then, it's ironic, isn't it? Like the introduction of the ERA and trying to accomplish state ratification required them to create an agreed-upon understanding of what feminism was because they were going to have to explain it to everybody in the state to get that ERA passed. And at that moment, the diversity that, that was the feminist movement was kind of ignored, but denied, even more than ignored. And, this what they called the low key we're going to low key the image of a feminist and what that meant is that they were asking the radicals not to engage in street protest for example they were you know now had been involved in they were calling radio stations with sexist disc jockeys and trying to get them removed from the air they were having abortion rights rallies all of all of those kinds of activities would be out um while they tried to get the ERA passed through the state house, which they hoped in 1972 would be quick, but it turned out to take a lot longer. And so that low-key strategy had some consequences.
1: Um, one thing that struck me was the, it seemed like the feminists uh, did not understand their opponents at all.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that
1: that's true. right. And yeah. I mean it seems like they didn't they they had no strategy. They had a strategy mm-hmm. for affecting the legislature to yes. pass them but they had no strategy for responding to the charges that were being made by these right-wing women. Yeah. They 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 didn't address uh things that they could have addressed like, "Oh, but you also work outside the home." Right. "We're helping you." Or they could pointed out how feminism helped. How feminism had helped mothers. They could have pointed out. Uh, they could have made appeals to to women in the past. You know, the women who vote for the suff- uh, uh, worked for the suffrage movement. They didn't seem to know how to respond to this underground guerrilla yeah. <laughs>
2: political campaign they were Coming up, up against. They did try to make connections, and, and they did make connections between first and second wave feminists, or you know, the the suffrage movement and what they were doing. Uh, but so did the conservatives. They trotted out a suffragist at the uh, <laughs> state house. So you know, they were they were contesting that. You know, they they were both contesting. You know, for that connection. I think you're largely right. They did not understand these these conservative women, and um, part of that is that. You know, like I said, there were different worldviews really developing in America in the post-war era after World War II. And, uh, you know, these things just seemed to really kind of like explode, it seemed to me, um, in the late 1960s, 1970s. And for for feminist women, they just couldn't understand this label of traitor. Why were they? Why? You know, what was that about? Why were they being called, especially, you know... um, because there was a religious coalition for the ERA, this this charge that they were satanic, that they were in league with the devil. Um, they they didn't know what else to believe, but that these people were, you know, lying or, you know what I mean? Like that they were, that they couldn't believe that. And then they met them and they realized they did believe it. And that bewildered them even more oftentimes when the two would come face to face and they would meet the opposition. And the opposition seemed to actually believe what they were saying. And that was even more astounding. And you saw that like in Molly Rucker's letter like it was it was really it was really hard for feminist women they they personally were felt very much attacked by the response they got it it was very traumatic in many ways now on, the, on
1: top of that this is a national this is a domestic uh, feminist movement and and push for the ERA you know was fueled by International things that were happening, like the International Women's Year yeah. and the UN, which yeah. world government. Okay, yes. so yes, that's so exactly it, right. So it seems to me like the uh, the association of domestic feminists with these international women's rights organizations really didn't serve them very well domestically.
2: Well, it certainly. You know, clicked every box for the world government folks, you know, the one worlders, you know, to them, the it cinches the deal. Right. There is just no doubt if it's a U.N., if it's a U.N. sponsored event, it is part of this um, conspiracy. And even if you're not, you're, if you're not a, if you're not maybe part of the elite cabal, you're a dupe of the elite cabal, which is going to get you the same rough treatment, um, and so, yeah, when, you know, ERA is followed very quickly by International Women's Year, which, you know, the UN sponsored this sort of celebration of women's um, political and, um, well, just women's involvement uh, around the world, uh, a celebration of, of, of women and women's achievements. And the United States, you know, participated in that with this, you know, series of conferences happening within states and then uh state level and then culminating in that Houston conference. But for conservatives, you know, this was just one more piece of evidence that the UN directives were being enacted within the United States and further connected in their mind feminists with that conspiracy. So yeah, that was not I don't know what, you know, in the world, Indiana feminists could have done about that connection, but certainly that connection was a, is a strong reason that um, conservative women turned out to IWI like they did.
1: I mean, you've, yes, you've got, you've got conservative women going to these events Mm -hmm. to gather information or evidence yeah, to bring back and say, look, what's happening at these Mm -hmm. events. Mm -hmm. Look, you know, how American sovereignty is being compromised you know, how the vision for the family or for gender is, you know, is going against our traditions and principles. I thought that that was, they, they were very smart to go. Yeah. Yes.
2: (laughs) Yes. They could have said, we
1: don't go, we don't have anything to do with that, but they actually said, no, we're going to go. It's like they went into, in in their minds, enemy territory. Yes, that's exactly how they described
2: it. Yes. Yes. That is exactly how they described it. That is how they saw themselves. You know, according to Evelyn Pishke, she was fasting before she went to Houston. That, that she was like preparing almost for like a spiritual battle. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that is exactly how they saw it. And again, to the feminists, it's, it's absolutely foreign. And, um, Inexplicable these responses to their demands uh, for, like I said, what they saw as social justice. So, yeah, it was for the conservative women. I think in many ways it was empowering for them. They come back from Iwy, and you can see in the letters that they wrote and in the correspondence that they have that they feel like they are accomplishing something. That even though the the national conference was very much opposed to their um, views, uh, it's almost like they 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 went, they gathered all that information, they brought it back to their states so that they could expose feminism for what it really was, as they understood it. Um, and in many ways, I think they were very successful at gaining the ear of uh, Republican legislators and gaining the ear of the Republican Party, because of course the ERA was taken off the Republican platform in 1980. Um, and you you saw the new right really rise to power in uh, the Republican party which these women are very much a part of
1: so what is what was the fate um, of era in Indiana
2: well I, I do want to point out because I think I don't want the book to come across as in any way critical of the calculations of feminist women i you know, they didn't understand their opponents. And it would have been very hard, I think, for them to have understood their opponents. Um, You know, we're only beginning to suss this all out, you know, decades after the fact. And in the end, the feminists did accomplish ERA ratification at the state level. Indiana is the last state in the nation to ratify the ERA. And it did so after a very long fight. Um, ERA is ratified in Indiana in 1977. So in that sense, their political calculations and strategies worked. Ultimately, they got it. Um, However, uh, the ERA nationally fell short. It needed, you know, three quarters of the states to ratify, and it didn't get them.
1: And also, they created fuel. They created fuel in Rotwin women to to bring the conservative movement to prominence in the 1980s.
2: Yes. Uh, There's that great quote in the book um, where I think it's Francis Dodson Rome says, you know, we inadvertently provided the platform for, you know, the opposition, you know, in creating these women's events and creating what they thought were going to be these celebrations of um, sort of like the feminist perspective and women's uh, participation in the society. They created the space uh, and the platforms in which conservative women launched their political um, movement. And so, so for them, it was bitter. What, it was very bitter.
1: You talk about the the role, the role of these women in uh, the national national conservative movement conservative, yeah. conservative movement within the Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, and Indiana is probably just one state and one example of probably multiple uh, examples from other states where the same sort of pattern probably emerged. Do you it have kind of,
2: any insight into that? I don't know other states. I know other state studies are, are certainly underway and being done. But it, it certainly looks like, you know, uh, for example, you know, Beulah Kohenauer is an example of this. You know, she she came up through these anti-communist conservative women's groups and was very active in the push to stop ERA and IWI. And then she went on um, to Win election in the city county council um, and served for a long time in Indianapolis um, on the city county council. And then, uh, Jane, uh, excuse me, Joan Gubbins is another example. She was actually um, a state senator in 1968 and uh, continued to be a state senator into the 1970s and then went on to work, um, had a, a couple of uh, uh, positions within the Reagan administration. Um, none of these women. I would describe all of these women as grassroots, you know what I mean? Like they, they, they didn't go on to, you know, lofty positions of power by any means, but they, their activism certainly continued um, into the 1980s and the 1990s. And those are just two examples, but, but certainly there are others. So, yeah, I think, again, I think the, for the conservative women, um, Catherine Nuku is another example, and she went on actually to have a career in broadcasting. She created her own talk show uh, series um, and uh, in the Indianapolis area, and did you know political interviews um, for many many years uh, after being involved in these organizations. So they launched really careers um, based on these politics.
1: So where are they? Where are I went? right wing I can say it right now right wing <laughs> women today where are they today what's what what are what's on do you know what, what's on their agenda is there still this one world thing government going on is conspiracy theories what's what's going on
2: i haven't interviewed any I, i've interviewed them um i believe it was 2011 and 2012 and Uh, So I haven't talked to anybody, you know, since the 2016 election to find out. And uh, I'm hoping to maybe touch base. Um, You know, obviously, I'm dealing with an aging population on that front. And so um, I I, I don't have any specific information about where their ideas are then or where their ideas are now. At the time when I interviewed them, none of the women I interviewed – really acknowledged or talked about conspiracy belief as being important to them. Um, they kind you know, Joan Gubbins especially just kind of said, oh, yeah, yeah, those ideas are around. Those ideas are always there. But I was really focused on this.
0: Um, I see.
2: And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were distancing, you know, Joan Gubbins specifically was, you know, distancing herself from those ideas. And yet when you read her at the time, you know, the arguments she was making, she was very much engaging in those beliefs. Um, now, now, because of the prominence of conspiracy theory and, and Donald Trump's, you know, own use of conspiracy theory during the election uh, and then certainly so much after, I'm not so sure if they would feel the same need to distance themselves from it. So I think it's possible that that, you know, the women that I interviewed, um, but even more, you know, women in the right today might be more willing to talk about these beliefs Um but that's all that's all just, you know, conjecture on my part, because like I said, I haven't had a chance to get back in touch and find out what, if any, of their you know thoughts have changed.
1: So, Aaron, what is the takeaway for the listener of this podcast or the reader of your book? What is the main thing that you want them to to know?
2: I guess what 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 I think the most um, important aspect of the book that I didn't get anywhere else was was understanding just how much conspiracy belief affected feminist strategy and also um, affected what happened to feminism uh, the story of feminism I think you have to understand the argument of the other side to understand the kind of um, strategies and and, uh, accomplishments that feminism was able to create so I I would look at and what I think is most important is just understanding how much conspiracy belief really circumscribed the feminist movement Yeah, something like that. Thank you, Erin. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lillian. It's been a
1: pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.